Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Today, we have our editor's roundtable, where I'm joined by Shika Dalmia and Akiva Malamut to discuss Tucker Carlson and the state of the American right. Yesterday, the day before we were recording this, Tucker Carlson took to Twitter to announce that his post-Fox News firing or dismissal or whatever we want to call it plans are to launch a new show on Twitter itself, which was, I think, an unexpected move on his part, but a really interesting one in the media landscape. So let's start there. What should we make of this move in terms of how it reflects upon the state of the American right? Uh, I'll jump in, uh, Erin. And yeah, so I guess we should back up a little bit and talk about what Tucker Carlson has so far done for the American right ever since he launched, launched his highly successful show on Fox News. I forget which year, but right around the time that Trump uh, came on. But, you know, Tucker Carlson was made possible by Trump. Uh, if Trump hadn't opened the door to sort of this right-wing populism, Tucker Carlson was an establishment conservative and he would have stayed that way. But, uh, you know, uh, Trump opened up all kinds of new possibilities for the right in every sphere, including talk shows. And so he came on and he was a populist. He was, you know, a conservative populist. But very soon he broke ranks from Trump and some of the uh, text exchanges that were revealed as part of the Dominion lawsuit actually suggest that he hated Trump and, you know, Trump's personal demeanor and his crassness and profanity and whatnot and couldn't wait for him to leave. Uh, so he started searching for Trumpism without Trump. So in essence, a right-wing populism without, you know, the strong man that Trump represented. And in this, he was like highly, highly successful. Uh, in my view, what he did was he married, uh, this was his was sort of like, you know, right-wing popul- populism of uh, white grievances. And to promote those grievances, he did two things. He took on the class warfare of the left and married it with the white identity culture warfare of the right. This was essentially his formula. And, uh, you know, we'll get into all the various tropes that he used uh, you know, his anti-establishment streak, but along with a real hatred of the liberal elite, uh, along with a hatred of immigrants, along with a hatred of minorities and, you know, gays. But he used that uh, white grievance politics to radicalize his base, radicalize the right. So the question is, what happens now? He moves from Fox, where he had a very successful platform, to Twitter. Now, the fate of talks, uh, Fox News hosts who've been fired, whether it's Bill O'Reilly or Glenn Beck, uh, you know, hasn't been very good. They, you know, Bill O'Reilly has all but faded and Glenn Beck, if you recall, started something called the blaze that was a thing for a while. And now they are both kind of persona non grata. And I think, I mean, maybe I'm being a little too optimistic, but I think what will happen to Tucker Carlson is the same thing that's going to happen to Trump on Twitter, which is that, uh, you know, they are both going to continue to radicalize a certain subsection of the right, but this subset is going to be much smaller than what it was before. So it'll be a smaller, more radicalized, but more marginalized group. 
uh, that's my prediction. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? So I think one of the, like the Twitter thing is very important, right? Because one of the main features of traditional broadcast media is that it's designed to reach a very wide audience. And that's how they make their money is by having a very wide audience. And internet, internet um, monetization is the opposite, right? It's all about cultivating a smaller niche audience who are very devoted, very loyal, follow your every move, follow your social media, and aren't, and you're not necessarily trying to reach everyone because you know that you can cultivate a very specific audience. And so just from a strict kind of structure of media point of view, it seems to me very likely that his audience is going to shift, is going to become more niche Tucker fans who are more committed to, who are, who are less in a broadly conservative or right-wing temperament and more, and more of a kind of fanboy um, conservative populist mode. Um, I think an interesting question will be whether I think it's likely that his messaging um, will change to reflect that and may become less um, less guarded than even it was on Fox News, but that's hard to say. Um, part of Tucker's brand, and this has been pointed out by various people, has been about introducing far-right white grievance politics with a veneer of respectability and plausible deniability, right? So he wouldn't say that, you know, we, he wouldn't say that directly that white people are being replaced, but he would say that, you know, there's like um, a, a vote, there's an, an emphasis on minorities to the exclusion of whites or something, or he would use it in more, he would talk about it in more polite terms to make it, uh, to make it more, more acceptable to a mass audience. And so I think it's an interesting question to see whether how much his brand depends on that plausible deniability and how much, or respectability and how much it actually depends on um, him really cultivating a certain kind of uh, voice that people want to hear. And especially when he doesn't have to speak to as wide an audience, when he's really reliant on a smaller subset, um, will his brand actually be reliant on being more forthright or will he still need to maintain some kind of uh, respectability. I am inclined to think that um, the respectability stuff is very much a function of being a cable news host and trying to speak to a wider array of the American public than being trying to be part of a kind of more niche right-wing conversation. I agree that the move to Twitter is fascinating because in large part because of the audience shift that this will entail and the monetary shift. So Tucker was Toxic to advertisers while he was at Fox. That was a constant story. It was advertisers dropping his show. He's now moving to a platform that is arguably has become more toxic to advertisers than his show at Fox ever was. And, and one where there isn't as wide of an audience to draw kind of mainstream advertisers who don't mind it as much. On top of it, all of that seems like it's going to get a lot worse by the time he actually launches this thing. I mean, yesterday, I know that Twitter was has become flooded with people sharing footage of recent mass shootings and mutilated corpses and just reply-guying those to people's tweets because Twitter's filters are broken. That kind of thing is going to drive away advertisers even more. And so it seems like his money is going to come less from advertising and more from Twitter now lets you subscribe to people so you can 
you can pay them a monthly fee and they get a Twitter takes a small cut and they get the rest. And I think Elon Musk gestured at that as um, when he sent out a note saying, we didn't actually sign a deal with Tucker, which sounds largely like a way to avoid another Dominion lawsuit. Like Section 230 is going to protect us because he's not an, he's not an employee of Twitter or want to make that very clear kind of thing. But that gets to the demographics because a huge portion of his audience, of Tucker's audience at Fox was basically aging boomers who watched Fox News all day. And whether they were specifically drawn to Tucker or not, he was what was on at prime time. They were watching their TV. Twitter's a bit more complicated than that as far as finding the show and watching it. It's not going to just pop up on your cable television. Um, so for one, we should kind of pour one out for all the young people who are going to have to try to explain to their parents and grandparents how to find stuff on Twitter. Um, but that also seems like those are the people who'd be most likely to pony up some cash to subscribe to him as well. Like younger people don't pay for things as much as older people. So I think one upshot of this is he's going to have a much harder time getting dollars in exchange for, that doesn't mean he's going to, he's, he still is going to make a bundle of money. Um, but it's the, the cash flow is going to drop quite a lot unless he can sign some sort of significant deals, but I'm skeptical. Yeah, that's actually a fascinating point, Erin. Um, yes, sort of, uh, I hadn't really thought about how uh, the baby boomers who were a big part of his audience, you know, are no longer going to be able to access him because they don't know Twitter. Uh, on the other hand, another big part of his audience were sort of young, you know, white men. Uh, you know, who are disenchanted, who are alienated, and they are flirting with uh, edgelordish, uh, radical, extremist ideologies. And a lot of his, the guests that he had on kind of reflected that, right? I mean, these were not figures that actually would, baby boomers would know about or appeal to them, but Tucker had them. And he actually did not have them on his Fox show. He had them you know, on that other parallel show, that personal show of his, of his that he had, which went, you know, had like one hour, two hour thing, things with a single with a single guest. And the kinds of people he had on them were like Mencius Moldbug, you know, the guy who invented the whole red pill uh, metaphor and very ardently believed that, uh, you know, political uh, left-wing liberal political orthodoxy ruled the country in a sort of totalitarian way. And that audience is actually quite well represented on Twitter, right? I mean, those are the kind of people who frequent Twitter and would likely, I think, be happy to pay the whatever amount he's going to, small amount he's going to charge them. So I think that sh one shift we can definitely expect is that his audience will shift from like the old fading boomers to sort of these new um, sort of, um, you know, radicalized young white men. Uh, that's where it's all going to come from. Um, so the question is, what will it do to the, you know, to the uh, right wing sort of politics in this country? I mean, I think that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, my prediction is actually, as you said, you know, they may like Tucker, but whether they are going to pony up the fee is an open question. I think they probably might. I mean, if it's a dollar a month or something, it may not be a big thing for them to do if they like him enough. Um, 
I mean, most Substacks charge about eight dollars a month, right? So this is uh, this is a, this is likely to be a small fee, but uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, but on the whole, I think his influence is going to wane. I'm inclined to agree with Shika. I think his influence is going to wane a lot. Uh, as I said, I think as soon as you shift to an internet-based based model of media production, you automatically are working to appeal to more of a niche rather than a mass audience because that's just a function of consuming media through the internet. Um, I think the big question then is, can we have, you know, um, I mean, people ask us about Trump when they thought Trump wasn't going to become significant uh, for the next election, although this may still be true, which is Trumpism without Trump, right? Um, and for that, we got DeSantis. DeSantis is angling to be the Trump, Trump without to, to argue, to defend the same kind of populist conservatism or, or, right, or populist nationalism without Trump's particular character flaws in, in history and so on. And so I think an interesting question will be whether you get Tuckerism without Tucker, um, whether Fox is going to try and replicate what Tucker does. And in this case, that actually creates a let also creates competition with Tucker in terms of people looking for something that's not available on Fox anymore. Um, or so do they, do they consider him like the voice of the right or that kind of ideology is the new space that they exist in, or do they consider it too much of a liability? And that's hard to say because it's not a hundred percent clear why they fired him in the first place. Um, there are lots of different things about, you know, the things that came, the dominion text that came out, um, and the specific ones, some of the stuff that he's the set, thing that he said about the people who beat up that um, I think Antifa kid. Um, so there's you know there's different reasons why Tucker may have may have been fired. So a lot of it depends on what the people who are running Fox see as the direction of Fox, and then that will have an effect on Tucker's audience as well in terms of Fox competing with Tucker for the same group of people. This does seem to raise a fascinating question about the direction of the broader kind of mainstream of the American right. And picking up on something you said at the beginning, Jacob, which was his his skill, the thing that he brought to the table that set him apart from all the other talking heads on Fox and in conservative media was his skill in basically mainstreaming ideologies that I would characterize as kind of American fascism and saying them in a way that made them palatable or made it so that people could feel like they weren't listening to some unhinged Alex Jones guy or or the avowed white supremacist on Twitter but you know that there was the plausible deniability of this stuff if he moves out of the mainstream so he moves off of the most watched you know cable news show or whatever it is to something that is going to be more obscure even if it's still as large on Twitter that takes that voice out of that larger chunk of the right-wing discourse. And Fox could replace him with someone with equally troubling and repugnant views, but it's unlikely that that person is going to have the skill that he had. That was his unique advantage. In the same way that people who have tried to be mini-Trumps usually fail because as awful as Trump is, he has this uncanny ability to like be engaging to a certain set of people that someone like DeSantis just lacks the personality for. So he's irreplaceable. And if that's the case, yes, Tucker might radicalize some more people online, but 
it's possible to imagine a future where the American right is able to drift in a slightly better direction because you don't have as many voters who aren't already committed to this stuff tuning in and hearing, even if it's kind of in a sublimated, sublimated way, white grievance politics and nationalist populism and all of the you know ultranationalism and so on that goes along with it. Right. Um, so, a lot to chew over there. I mean, you know, so if you think about what made Tucker so successful on Fox News, and I really do believe that certain formulae for success work on certain platforms and not on other platforms. And uh, he kind of used the you know Fox platform to put together a very successful formula. First was, of course, as I mentioned, you know, marrying sort of class warfare with cultural warfare, right? That was that was one big thing. The other thing was that he broke ranks from Fox News uh, in trying to do, uh, you know, Trumpism without Trump in the sense that, you know, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly and Laura Ingram and all these other hosts at Fox News are kind of like talking heads for Republicans. You know, they... They are always on message. They're always on cue. He was actually willing to kind of break ranks with them and even occasionally, you know, call out, um, you know, call out uh, Republicans. So in a sense, instead of Republicans making, you know, Laura Ingram or some of or Sean Hannity by providing, you know, this access to power, he was a, a sort of a kingmaker in the Republican Party. Uh, DeSantis went on his show many times to, you know, peddle his wares. Um, J.D. Vance, I mean, he radicalized J.D. Vance. He radicalized Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, who condemned the January 6th attack after T Tucker called him uh, called him out, uh, uh, backtracked. And so, so that was the second attraction that he had. And the third was he was somewhat heterodox. You know, he would invite guests who were not part of kind of like the conservative canon, like Glenn Greenwald, the, you know, the renegade leftist was, you know, a frequent guest on his show, which gave him the plausible deniability part that I'm not like a right winger. I get people from all sides. And the other thing was that he pretended, and this is the one that galls me the most, was that he positioned himself as the truth teller, you know, who was saying things that, you know, others wouldn't say and giving the unvarnished truth when he was cynically manipulating public opinion, right? I mean, he knew that the election, uh, you know, the big lie was a big lie, and he continued to peddle it on his show. So the you know, so the cynicism with the plausible deniability, you know, all of that was part of him, and I, you know, some of that's going to get worse on Twitter, and some of that, I don't know, may get a little better on Twitter. But I have a feeling he cannot replicate that exact formula anymore. He will become a marginal figure for Republicans. I think he will no longer be able to play kingmaker for Republicans because he just won't have the figure and the mass audience to do that, as Akiva is saying. So that too, I think, is going to diminish his, you know, potency. Um, if that makes any sense. What do we make of the people who ought to know better? advancing those kinds of, I guess, defenses of him, that, that he had, oh, he wasn't partisan because he had a lot of people from the left on. But then those people from the left, uh, use the left in kind of air quotes, um, were 
were people like Glenn Greenwald or Tulsi Gabbard who were might agree with him on a handful, like on might be left on some issues, but weren't really like these weren't the mainstream of the American left. These weren't like culturally left people. These were pretty right wing people in a lot of ways. Um, or the the truth telling. It just it does seem like there's a lot of people who ought to know better who are, if not defending him, at least saying we're going to miss him because he was providing something valuable. So I think on that, um, there are and it's, there are various you know shades and groups here, but there is a whole denomination of people who let's call them the anti woke crowd. Right, people who really, really don't like identity politics for a whole range of reasons. Sometimes because they're like more traditional lefty Marxists. Uh, sometimes they're more like centrist liberals or whatever. There's people on the left who don't like wokeism, um, or what they perceive wokeism to be. Since I think wokeism is a very, or the term woke is a fairly nebulous term um, that is often used as more as an epithet than in, than in service of clarity. So I think a lot of people are became taco fans because they were upset. It's kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend thing, where you know Tucker's calling out this stuff that they don't like about identity politics and this stuff they don't like about um, you know the the various ways that people on in the quote unquote woke camp will call out what they see as oppression. Um, and because Tucker was opposed to that, because Tucker's whole platform is about white grievance politics, and so in that, like by by necessity, is anti the woke platform. Um, they become allies of Tucker, even though what Tucker is calling for is far beyond just worries you might have about excesses of the left. It's he's he's mainstreaming, as Shika said, um, white grievance politics. He's mainstreaming fascist talking points and is fundamentally concerned about the loss of status for tradition for certain traditional groups white christian straight you know cisgender men and so i think that's that that plays a big part into tucker's popularity you don't just see it with tucker by the way i think you see that a lot with kind of the whole intellectual dark web type people who um grouped around you know, saying that we're we're not right wing, we're just concerned about wokeness. But inevitably, you see the sort of creep towards an embrace of right wing talking points. So much that someone like James Lindsay, who was like going on and on about critical theory and postmodernism, um, has actually become a mainstream. Has taught is now talking about things like cultural Marxism and you know white genocide and so on. Um, and so there's. Again, one group is just people who really don't like wokeness, and another group who, in the process of, of disliking the left, have themselves become right wing. So you saw that with Lindsay. You see that you saw that with Dave Rubin, um, very prominently, who started out being this kind of, well, I don't like some of the way the left talks, and he was talking to a lot of classical liberals for a while, and then eventually he he came out and said, I'm voting for Trump, and I'm supporting all of this this right wing, this populist white grievance politics stuff. Right. I would, um, yeah, I think that's a good taxonomy of the people who like uh, Tucker. I would add like a third group to that, which is that, you know, actual lefties. Uh, American Prospect uh, did this. I, I haven't read the piece because 
you know, it was apparently a pretty bad piece and the magazine had to retract it. But, you know, one of the things that Tucker did do was produce a certain kind of a political realignment or he helped, you know, so issues that were traditionally associated with the right and those associated with the left, he kind of jumbled them up and he mixed them up. And that drew in a whole bunch of people who are actual lefties. So, and some of the tropes that he used, right, they drew them in. Like, you know, he was anti-war, he's against the military industrial complex, and he's against big corporations. He turned against big pharma. He, he, I think he had Robert F. Kennedy on his show, or maybe he got fired before he could do it. I'm sure he would have had him on his show. So they, these were, you know, lefties who had been using these this kind of like vocabulary back in the 60s, heard it like reinvented by Tucker and thought, oh, this is something interesting. This is something new. And so you have that subset, I think, also who got attracted to him and, uh, you know, slowly sucked into kind of like his right-wing politics. Yeah, I think that last group is actually quite important because it's what's notable about Tucker, the move Tucker makes is that he uses the same framing of oppressor and oppressed that you see on parts of the left, he just makes the groups different, right? So instead of blacks, instead of whites oppressing blacks, which would be on the left, it's blacks oppressing whites or minorities oppressing whites. Um, and in a way, this is also why I'm wary of excessive, this is a larger conversation about how we think about the political narratives we tell about simple narratives of like, the oppressor and the oppressed or the elites and the people or whatever, because it so easily lends itself into a kind of mad libs fill in the blank um, narrative of pick the people that you don't like and the people that you ally with. Um, and you, and you, and it becomes this kind of like, we need to mount this Titanic struggle to defeat whoever's in power on behalf of the, the people who are being oppressed. Um, which is not to say we shouldn't care about oppression, of course, but like this very, it's e very easily lends itself to a, a Tuckerification um, just with different groups. Um, and to some extent, that's what I worry about, um, especially political discourse, where you basically have two, uh, two competing narratives that are basically the same in structure, but different in the, in the group emphases. Um, and you need a discourse that transcends this kind of like simple narrative of like, well, the real oppressor oppressors are the capitalists versus, you know, the liberal elites, the talker wants to talk about or something, which is all creates a, it, it, it just reify, it actually reifies Tucker's discourse, right? If you're just switching the groups out. You're right that a lot of his appeal is building this narrative for people who have felt disaffected in certain in various ways by what they imagine to be the mainstream of American politics. And a lot of it is you've been wronged by elites, by the people who control the commanding heights of culture, often by foreigners who are taking your jobs or taking your culture. There's this odd simultaneous, these enemies who are invading or degrading us are simultaneously strong enough to be a grave threat we have to fight back against, but also are all weak and effete themselves, which is where you get this kind of cult of masculinity that he has 
played into of we are the manly men standing up against this weak enemy that is also at the same time so powerful that it's a threat to our way of life, which is a confused perspective but is common in these kind of political ideologies. But at the same time, we've all we've talked about how he's now going to be building this narrative on a less pervasive platform, one that will have a smaller audience and is likely to lead to him speaking without the guardrails that he had to some extent at Fox. And so kind of the mask of this is going to come off and the white nationalism and so on is likely to be more explicit, less dog whistly. So does that narrative that he's building present, as, as weird as it sounds, present a significant threat when it's no longer on a mainstream platform and no longer presented in this way where you can kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, plausible deniability? Yeah, good question, Erin. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, I really like how Akiva uh, sort of framed what uh, Tucker had done, which is take the standard social justice, you know, causes of oppressive oppressed and then just put different content in them. And one, uh, you know, so there is that. But, you know, he is also affirmatively does believe in a certain white superiority, right? Like he, you know, and the text that eventually may have pro proven his undoing you know, about the Antifa kid where that uh, Kiva was referring to where, you know, he says, well, something like, you know, these white men were beating this Antifa kid and one level he wanted them to beat him up more. But on the other hand, you know, white men don't, f you know, fight like that. Now, the level of delusion that is required to make a statement like that, right, in a country that has had slavery, that has had Jim Crow, that has had lynching, that had the Tulsa race massacre in 1922, and then it whitewashed, no pun intended, that entire history to make, you know, sort of white people look like the good guys in all of this. I mean, that's pretty, uh, you know, that's pretty breathtaking. But I think he believes that. He actually believes that. And I think, yes, with these guardrails down, this, you know, this sort of very self-righteous self understanding of, you know, white supremacy, whites are better, is going to come out. And I think the trick for him is going to be to be able to keep doing that without actually sounding like a white supremacist, right? Like, which means that making white people actually sound like the victims and marry it with like a righteous kind of narrative about their goodness, as opposed to the badness of these other groups, which will always be there. But that can't be sort of the totality of his message. He has to somehow continue to build, you know, that white people are good people. Uh, uh, they are moral people. Uh, they like clean roads. They don't like littering by these, you know, dirty third world immigrants. Um, so he's going to have to pull that, uh, you know, pull that trick. And, um, you know, but to the extent that he is less successful, it does give opponents of Tucker Carlson, or not Tucker Carlson, but this kind of like this insidious reactionary right wing 
narrative and also an opportunity. Uh, just he's going to take, there's going to be a resorting, I think, in American politics, partly because of what he's done and he's continuing to do and other people who are going to take it, take his place. They are going to draw the people who are naturally attracted to these kinds of reactionary ideas into one place, which means that the rest of us can actually work on drawing the people who are not attracted to these ideas from across the political spectrum into some kind of a healthier, you know, pluralistic, tolerant, liberal, uh, civil society polity, which is what kind of like the unpopulist is all about. So I think there is a sorting happening that he is, you know, he's kind of emblematic of. And there is going to be a sorting on this other side. And there is going to be a battle of ideas. There's going to be, you know, you know, political battles and what have you. But him taking away the dredges with him, with him might help us clear up the rest of the body politic, you know, for healthier purposes. I don't know. At least that's my optimistic take. I think a lot of that is right. Um, I think it only works, though, if a viable narrative social narrative is created um, if we offer a viable social narrative. So I mentioned before that Tucker's modus operandi is basically taking left-wing social justice works and and um, fr- frameworks and swapping in right-wing grievances. And I think what's at the core of that whole idea is the notion that the world is a zero-sum game, that it's us or them. We win, we win, you lose, or you lose, or you win, we lose. It's very much like white or black, you know, it's either the traditional gender roles or it's the, you know, more expansive gender roles or whatever. And I think something at the heart of, like, liberalism in a very broad sense is this idea of cooperation, that there are advantages, you know, gains from trade, as the economists like to say. Um, and then in general, the with what is there is a lot of possibility of for people who are quite different from each other to benefit from cooperating interacting with each other and to really the way to diffuse the tucker narrative is to show that to people and to not as some people on the left have done to say well tucker is right except the real problem is you know uh, the capitalists or whatever, especially because sometimes those narratives actually blend together. So like famously, Bernie Sanders said that um, open borders is like a Koch brothers proposal, um, which is could have been said by Tucker. Um, it's very much the same idea that like the elites are trying to control you. They're trying to create a conflict. Conflict is inherent in human life. You know, someone has to win. And I think the liberal message is that we can all win if we learn how to cooperate with each other. And so... That I think very much that uh, undertone to um, media that's alternative to Tucker is very important. Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts. And also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist.